please now open your Bibles uh, as I bring us today's Bible readings, uh, words from God. The first reading is from Job chapter 6, verse 1 to 13. Job chapter 6, verse 1 to 13. Then Job answered and said, Oh, that my vexation were weighed and all my calamity laid in the balances. For then it will be heavier than the sand of the sea. Therefore my words have been rash. For the arrows of the Almighty are in me. My spirit drinks their poison. The terrors of God are arrayed against me. Does the wild donkey bray when he has grass, or the ox low over his fodder? Can that which is tasteless be eaten without salt? Or is there any taste in the juice of the mallow? My appetite refuses to touch them. They are as food that is loathsome to me. Oh, that I might have my request, and that God will fulfill my hope, that, I would please, that it would please God to crush me, that he would let loose his hand and cut me off. This would be my comfort. I would even exult in pain unsparing, for I have not denied the words of the Holy One. What is my strength that I should wait? And what is my end that I should be patient? Is my strength the strength of stones, or is my flesh bronze? Have I any help in me when resource is driven from me? Our second reading is from chapter 7, verse 11 to 21. Therefore, I will not restrain my mouth. I will speak in the anguish of my spirit. I will complain in the bitterness of my soul. Am I the sea or a sea monster that you set a guard over me? When I say, my bed will comfort me, my couch will ease my complaint. Then you scare me with dreams and terrify me with visions, so that I would choose strangling and death rather than my bones. I loathe my life, I would not live forever. Leave me alone, for my days are a breath. What is man that you make so much of him, and that you set your heart on him? Visit him every morning, and test him every moment. How long will you not look away from me, nor leave me alone till I swallow my spit? If I sin, what do I do to you, you watcher of mankind? Why have you made me your mark? Why have I become a burden to you? Why do you not pardon my transgression and take away my iniquity? For now I shall lie in the earth. You will seek me, but I shall not be. Our third reading is from chapter 19, verse 23 to 27. Chapter 19, verse 23 to 27. Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. Oh, that with an iron pen and lead they were engraved in the rock forever. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. My heart faints within me. If you say, How we will pursue him, and the root of the matter is found in him, be afraid of the sword, for wrath brings the punishment of the sword, that you may know there is a judgment. Our last reading is from the New Testament in Hebrews, from chapter 4, verse four to 14 to 16. Hebrews 4, 14 to 16. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest 
who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Good morning everyone and welcome to my home and this pre-recorded sermon for today. Just a note before we go, we're going to cover a lot of ground today in chapters 6 through to 27 in the book of Job. And so we're going to be reading quite a few quotes to get a feel for what's going on in his mind and how he's responding. And because of this, we're going to have a lot of quotes. Uh, I'm, going to, I'm going to place them up on the screen as they come up. So uh, feel free to just watch and um, let it uh, all, all be taken in. For now though, let me pray and ask God to bless us as we hear this word. Heavenly Father, thank you that you speak, and we pray that now, by your Spirit, you would help us to understand, that we would have ears to hear, and most of all, that you would show us Christ and your glory through this the, this passage, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you've been reading through the book of Job, it's probably at this point now that you have given up. Or I was speaking to one of the teens at our church recently, last weekend, and she mentioned that she had just started picking up the book of Job and was trying to read through it. But then when she got to chapter 6, it just got really confusing. And I don't blame her. The cycle of responses that we looked at from the friends last week seemed pretty straightforward and okay to understand. They hit the same note again and again. And as they keep talking, it may feel like they're just simply just getting louder to try and get their point across. They keep saying to Job, God is a fair God. He is a just God. He blesses the faithful and he punishes the wicked. And what you're experiencing is the opposite of blessing, which means that it's punishment and punishment for some serious sin that you need to confess and repent of. But when it comes to reading Job's thoughts and replies, it can feel confusing, disorienting even. See, not only does he passionately defend himself, but he swings from accusing God of being unfair to depression to hope back to accusation and to anger. And not only that, there are quite often small phrases and verses which are just very hard to understand. Now, despite all of that, we're going to focus on what we're going to focus on today as we read through Job's responses isn't also isn't simply theoretical. Job's response kind of looks like just a big theological debate, but it's also more practical than that. So let's dive into, into his responses and see some of the major things that he hits on. So after the catastrophic events of the opening chapters, Job begins his contemplation and reflection. He finally opens his mouth to speak in chapter 3, and he begins with a wish and desire that he was never born. It's a tear-filled, grief-filled, emotional dump. Eliphaz, one of his friends, goes on the defensive mode after hearing this and in chapters, in chapters 4 and 5, and then Job responds in chapter 6. So the first thing he says in chapter 6 is that his anguish and pain are just far too weighty. They are too much for him. Oh, that my vexation were weighed, and that all my calamity laid in the balances, for then it would be heavier than the sand of the sea. Therefore my words have been rash. You see it there in verse 3. Heavier than the sand on the beaches, on our beaches combined, which is the cause of his seemingly rash words. And who is the cause of this weighty vexation, this anguish? Who's responsible for it? Job says it's God himself. Verse 4. For the arrows of the Almighty are in me. My spirit drinks their poison. The terrors of God are arrayed against me. Job pictures God pointing his bow and arrow directly against Job and firing away with poisoned arrows. The goal of this is not to kill him, but to simply terrorize him. 
So if Job was alive today, he might say that God has his gun pointed at me, but not to kill me with bullets, but to inflict constant pain with rubber bullets. Because of this, Job wants nothing more than to just die. Oh, that I might have my request, that God would fulfill my hope, that it would please God to crush me, that he would let loose his hand and cut me off. Like his desire back in chapter 3, Job again simply wishes to be cut off, to have his pain end. If God is the cause of his pain, then he wishes that God would end his life quickly. But to his amazement, Job expresses just afterwards in verses 11 to 12, that he actually feels like he's been made immortal, as though his strength is the strength of stones and his flesh is as of bronze, that his pain and his suffering might be prolonged. He feels like he's immortal because he just keeps feeling all this pain. On top of this feeling uh, uh, and this way with words, uh, his brothers, these friends, their words are stinging his ears and his heart. He needs loving and caring friends more than anything else right now, but he's feeling incredibly lonely. He who withholds kindness from a friend forsakes the Almighty. My brothers are treacherous as a torrent bed, as torrential streams that pass away, which are dark with ice and where the snow hides itself. A torrent bed is a place where fast-moving streams flow. You don't want to take a casual swim in these creeks and rivers because the current would be far too strong and would sweep you away. And that's how Job feels about his friends and what his friends are like. Not loving and caring, but unkind, dark, torrential streams that sweep him away with their narrow wisdom. And while in verses 24 and 25 he offers them to teach him where he's gone wrong, he believes ultimately that their rebukes are empty. And so where his friends fail to connect and understand is really of how Job is feeling towards God and his wrestle and his intense wrestle with God himself. They don't get this. So in chapter 7, you get a further idea of how Job feels towards God. He feels like God is intentionally and constantly terrorizing him. When I say my bed will comfort me, my couch will ease my complaint, then you scare me with dreams and terrify me with visions so that I, could, I would choose strangling and death rather than my bones. Job has no peace, even in his sleep. There is an old saying, there is no rest for the wicked. Well, Job has no rest and he knows and we know it's not because he is wicked. Rather, he blames God for the lack of rest. The night terrors and visions robbing him of even a moment of respite from his pain. He simply wants God to leave him alone. I loathe my life. I would not live life. I would not live forever. Leave me alone for my days are a breath. But because God won't leave him alone, it's like he's being bullied constantly. What is man that you make so much of him and that you set your heart on him? Visit him every morning and test him every moment. What is the point of all of this, Job wonders? Why won't God just simply forgive him and be done with it? Whatever he's done wrong, just forgive him. Why not pardon my transgression and take away my iniquity? For now I shall lie in the earth, you will seek me, but I shall not be. Job insists that he's done nothing wrong. We already know this as well. He's done nothing to earn this level of suffering and punishment he's experiencing. Look, we're all sinful people, and Job will admit himself that he's not perfect. He's not uh, a, a sinless person. But if God is just, then what Job is experiencing is, in a nutshell, unfair. 
As we move into the meatier part of uh, this middle part, things start to swing wildly in Job's mood and responses. The friends are not having any eye of this idea that God is unfair. They push back and then Job pushes back even harder. Holding steadfastly to his integrity that he is an innocent person, Job hits back. And so in chapter 9, Job says that God is just way too big and distant to understand what's really going on. See, even if Job could get a hearing, he doesn't believe it would be fair. Though I am right... I cannot answer him. I must appeal for mercy to my accuser. If I summoned him and he answered me, I would not believe that he was listening to my voice. Verse 20. Though I am in the right, my own mouth would condemn me. Though I am blameless, he would prove me perverse. Hear how Job thinks that even though he is innocent, somehow God would find something to pin on him. See, in the face of what, what he sees as injustice, Job has two requests. Of all that is happening to him, he's got two requests. The first one is to back off. Only grant me two things, then I will not hide myself from your face. I withdraw your hand far from me, and let not dread of you terrify me. He wants God to relent, lift his hand that is terrifying Job even as he sleeps. And second... He wants to put God in the witness box and grill him with questions. Over, uh, no, over the past few uh, weeks and months, the news of the trial of George Floyd killer, uh, effort, um, uh, George Floyd's killer, Officer Derek Chauvin, has taken up much of the airways. Now, if you've seen some of that coverage, you will have seen that many witnesses were called to take their seat next to the judge, uh, divided by a bit of a perspex screen for COVID safety, and they were asked questions from both the prosecutors and the defense. Now, this is what Job wants. He wants God to step out of the judge's box and into the witness box, and he wants to grill him with questions. Then call and I will answer, or let me speak and you reply to me. How many are my iniquities and my sins? Make me know my transgression and my sin. Why do you hide your face and count me as your enemy? Will you frighten a driven leaf and pursue dry chaff? This is not the last time Job will make such a request. Uh, you get a sense here that he is so worked up that, th that this is an intensely frustrating situation for him to be in. If, if his friends were right, then the solution would just be simple, right? Confide, confess and repent of your sin, and then your blessings will be restored. That's what Eliphaz predicted all the way back in chapter 5. But it's not that simple for Job. Job knows that there is nothing to confess, and all he has left is to struggle with why God continues to allow his pain and torment him further. See, Job's wisdom, his, his understanding of God and understanding of how God's ways work in this world, it's failing him. He, he can't make sense of it. He, his wisdom is limited, and it's just leading him to a dead end. And so at the end of chapter 13, he wants to put God in the dock to prosecute his case and hear what God would have to say. But after Bildad speaks for a second time, Job's emotions take another roller coaster ride twist. The opening of chapter 19 has him again complaining about his torment and the injustice of it all. And at the end of chapter 19, he wants his words written down permanently so that future generations can know his story. Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. Oh, that with an iron pen and lead they were engraved in the rock forever. 
there is perhaps a glorious and wonderful irony that we are still reading his words all these centuries later. But then in chapter 19, verse 25, his tune seems to change. See, gone are the dark minor chords we have heard so far, the clashing cymbals, the roar of the organ of injustice. In 1925, suddenly, beautiful strings soar and in glorious harmony, filling the air with a strange new tune, hope. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. My heart faints within me. These words are worth pausing to expand on a bit more. They are surprising in so many ways, not just for the turn of emotion. The word redeemer is that same word that, you, word that Ruth and Naomi used when they were speaking about Boaz. A redeemer is someone who closely related, whose job it is, is to stand up for you when you've been wronged. So in the book of Ruth, Boaz's job was to stand up for Ruth and Naomi and ensure that their lineage was not forgotten and ensure that the land that they had was not passed on to another. Job's redeemer will be the one who stands up for him, who defends him against this torment. Job's redeemer stands upon the earth. Literally, he stands upon the dust. A reference to the very dust that Job is sitting presently on, and also a reference to his future grave. This pictures someone. Uh, this pictures something better than just a tombstone with his words and his complaint engraved upon it. He will have a forever living vindicator standing on his grave, testifying to his righteousness. Job believes that he will stand before God after his death, after his skin has been destroyed. There is an expectation of resurrection here, an expectation of being able to see the God he has worshipped face to face. See, chapter after chapter, we've seen Job complain, argue with his friends, protest his innocence and wish to die. And in the middle comes this immense faith-fueled hope. So who is this Redeemer that he hopes for? Well, it can be none other than God himself. Now that might feel like a bit of strange logic. God will help Job against God, but it can be no one else. No one else is capable of actually helping Job in his present suffering. But hope can be a fragile thing. You, you, if you nurture it with the, and give it the right care and love, it can be built into a rock-solid foundation for living. Right? Christian hope is like that. Our hopes need to be rooted deeply in the gospel of grace. And the more it's nurtured in community with each other, the more it will take root and we can build on top of that. But if that doesn't happen, then hope can be quite fleeting. See, despite how wonderful these words are in chapter 19, we get an interruption again from another friend, Zophar, which dashes all momentum. He returns again to that one single note that his friends keep banging on about. And the hope of these words in chapter 19 disappear like smoke into thin air. So, with a change of tune again, Job returns to complaining in chapter 21 that God is unfair, not only because of his own suffering, but because he, it seems that the wicked continue to prosper. Why do the wicked live reach old age and grow mighty in power. Their houses are safe from fear and no rod of God is upon them. 
Their bull breeds without fail, their cow calves and do, does not miscarry. They sing to the tambourine and lyre, and rejoice to the sound of pipe. They spend their days in prosperity, and in peace they go down to Sheol. They say to God, Depart from us, we do not desire the knowledge of your ways. What is the Almighty that we should serve him? What profit do we get if we pray to him? Behold, is not their prosperity in their hand? Job returns to this issue of the wicked prospering and getting away with their sins in chapter 24 as well. See, if God is God, a God of justice, then this is just plainly wrong. Not only is it wrong for God to allow the wicked to prosper, but it's also a key piece of evidence that shows that Job's friends and their theology is wrong. They believe the wicked will be punished. But here Job reflects that life and experience just do not see to seem to line up with that. And so Job returns to the courtroom. He imagines again what it would be like to put God into the dock, to grill him with questions. And this time, uh, in chapter 23, he seems mighty confident that his arguments are sound and will be heard. Uh, listen to how confident he sounds. Oh, that I knew where I might find him, that I might come even to his seat. I would lay my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. I would know what he would answer me and understand what he would say to me. Would he contend with me in the greatness of his power? No, he would pay attention to me. There an upright man could argue with him, and I would be acquitted forever by my judge. Imagine being so confident that you could sit God down, that you could press him with questions and have him realize that you were right and he was wrong. Yeah, this is what Job thinks will happen. Or he hopes will happen. Because by the end of the day, he may want this, he may hope for this, but he knows it not only will not happen, but that God, he believes that God might deny him justice. As God lives, who has taken away my right, and the Almighty who has made my soul bitter, as long as breath is in me, and the Spirit of God is in my nostrils, my lips will not speak falsehood, and my tongue will not utter deceit. Far be it from me to say that you are right. Till I die, I will not put away my integrity from me. I hold fast my righteousness and will not let it go. My heart does not reproach me for any of my days. You see it there in verse 2. He believes that God has taken away his rights. God may deny him justice, but Job will hold fast his integrity and righteousness. No matter what his friends throw at him, no matter what he believes, uh, no matter how he believes God is crushing him, he will not repent unless he can be shown clearly to have done something terribly wrong. So here in chapters 3 to all the way to 27, Job has been on a massive roller coaster of emotions. Have you heard, the five, have you heard about the five stages of grief? Uh, for anyone going through immense grief, they can experience five stages. Denial, where they just don't believe what's happened. Anger, they get angry about what's happened. Bargaining, they try and work out some way of striking a deal. Depression, it just gets all too much for them. And then finally, acceptance. They embrace what their grief, they embrace what's happened, their loss, and they continue to grow. People experience grief often, people who experience grief often walk through these stages. They're not necessarily in order and they can swing back and forth between the different stages as well until they reach acceptance. But in these chapters that we walk through today, Job appears to be swinging wildly between anger and bargaining and depression and then back to anger. 
he will not accept his suffering, especially if he has nothing to do, if it has anything to do, I should say, uh, he will not accept his suffering if it has anything to do with any particular wrong that he has done to deserve this. Now, Job isn't done complaining yet. Not yet. There's a few more chapters still left, including a very important one on wisdom in chapter 28. So important that we're actually devoting an entire sermon to it next week. But for now, it's a good place to pause and take all of this in. What do you think of Job now, after we've read through all these passages? I think we should make two observations. The first observation is this. Job is better than Satan thought he was. Satan wanted Job, remember, to curse God, to give up worshipping him and walk away. Satan wanted to prove that Job only worshipped God because God gave him good stuff. Take all of that away, Satan said, and Job would curse you to your face. Now, through this entire section, it might be tempting to think that Job has done just that, that he has cursed God, that he has lost his faith. But he hasn't. Job never actually curses God. He questions God's justice. He argues and protests his own innocence. He's confused and vexed about his situation and God's ways in this world. Job even wants to put God into the witness box so that he can prosecute his case and have God answer his questions. But he never once curses God. He stamps his foot. He screams injustice. He does all of that in standing relationship with God. Job is better than Satan thought he was. But on the flip side, the second observation we need to make is that Job isn't necessarily better than his friends. Pastor Ben reminded us from last week that Job's friends have an overly narrow and small view of God. Their theology and their wisdom was far too narrow. Simply believing that God blesses the faithful and curses the wicked, God loves the righteous and punishes the wrongdoer with poverty and suffering. And so because Job is in poverty and suffering, he, need, he must have done something wrong, therefore he just needs to repent, and then he'll be restored. That is too narrow, too small. Yet Job doesn't have perfect theology in contrast either. either. His view of God is, if I can put it this way, too big. Now by that I mean that he, Job believes that God is too big, too distant, too almighty. Distant is the key word there. God is powerful, but not personal. God is just, but in Job's case, he feels like he is, he's being unfair, that he's not taken Job's personal character into account. God is not playing by his own rules. Job's theology and experience, his theology, his understanding, his wisdom, and his experience of life, they're not lining up, and it causes him immense frustration. Job is a wisdom book, by, but, by the end, but, this, but by this point in this book, his wisdom has failed him. What he knows of God and what he thinks he knows and how he thinks God operates in this world has come to a dead end and it makes no sense. And so Job cries out for three things. He cries out for a mediator, a, a redeemer, someone who can stand up in his defense. His friends have been terrible at this, and so he needs a third party. He cries out to see God face to face. He wants to meet God. He believes he will meet God one day. And he wants to do this so that three, he can grill God on why he has allowed so much suffering in his life and why he seems to allow ongoing injustice in this world. Now, these three desires are eventually granted. God will turn up at the end of the book. So pausing here in our passage right now, 
uh, might feel a bit weird. It might feel like pausing an epic movie that you're really getting into. You hit stop and then you just have to listen to your friend explain the entire meaning of the movie. Uh, that said, as we do pause here, notice that on all of Job's emotional outbursts and vexation, the three things he wants more than anything else are actually fulfilled in Jesus. Everything Job wants and needs is found in Jesus. Job wanted a mediator, someone who to stand up for him. The redeemer he wanted was none other than God himself, God to stand up for Job against God. In Christ, we have God come near in the flesh. The writer of the Hebrew said it perfectly as it was read out before. Jesus is our high priest and a priest who is just like us and able to sympathize with our weaknesses. Because he came to live as one of us, Job wanted God to walk in his shoes, to know the injustice of his pain. When Jesus came, he gave us the proof that all human suffering is now personally and intimately known by God. Jesus can truly sympathize with our pain. That's what Job wanted. He wanted God to know exactly what he was going through. That's why he wanted to see him face to face. That's why he wanted to grill him, so that God would know what his pain was. See, if you've gone through a trial, then you know that the best person to truly sympathize with you is someone who has gone through that same trial. Having someone who has been there where you've, where you've been, hearing the words from them, if you hear the words from them, I know what you're feeling and you're going through, and I can tell you it will get better. Those words mean so much more from someone who has gone through the same sort of suffering. The broken are best placed to help the broken. Now, this doesn't mean that we don't try and help. We don't speak words of comfort if, we're not, if we haven't experienced the same thing. But it does mean that if you have, if you've gone through a similar trial, you are best placed to help those who are feeling the same things. See, when Christ, was, came, when Christ came, he was made in our likeness and was tempted at the same, to the same degree that we have been tempted. And yet he remained sinless. And in this way, he becomes the perfect mediator. Earlier in Hebrews, the writer tells us this, For because he himself suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Suffering brings about all sorts of doubts and questions. And Jesus has been there as well. I mean, he suffered, and in his suffering, he was no doubt tempted to doubt God's plans and purposes. And because he went there, and he was there, and he pulled through, he is best placed to help us, all of us, in our temptations. And because of Jesus, we can see God face to face. When Jesus came to dwell among us, he revealed God truly and perfectly. It was like seeing God face to face. But the final picture of Revelation given to us is of a future, more uh, of a greater future that we get to look forward to. And I heard with a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. All who trust in Christ can have this future to look forward to. A future not where we see God face to face to grill him and put him in the dock, but to have every tear from our eyes wiped away by his hand. Where everything Job wanted and hoped for would be found. No more death, 
no more mourning, no more crying or pain, for all of that will have passed away. Everything Job wants so far is found in Jesus. As readers on this side of the cross, we can see the end from the beginning. See, Job didn't get to see Jesus in his life, but he did. He will get to meet God face to face, and we'll be reading that in the coming weeks. But for now, let's pause and reflect on what these chapters mean for us. If what Job wanted and needed was found in Jesus, then there's no other place where we can find what we would want and need as either. So because Jesus is what we need and, and what we need, a few things to reflect on. Firstly, because Jesus is our perfect mediator, we are never alone. Job not only went through deep pain and hurt, but the arrival of his friends did not help either. That sense of loneliness in his struggles must have been profound. It's a loneliness shared by Jesus himself, who, in his most urgent time and need, had all of his friends scatter and deny him. But because Jesus' alone, uh, Jesus' lonely suffering means that we will never be left alone. He suffered alone that we might never be left alone. And even when the world and our friends fail, and even sometimes when the church fails us, Jesus dwelling in us by his Holy Spirit means that we are never alone. For the weary, heartbroken believer, I pray that this resonates deeply for you, that all that Job experienced was tasted by our Saviour, so that you wouldn't be you would never be left alone in your misery. In Christ we have one who is with us who has also suffered. So in our suffering we know that God truly knows what we are going through. Job's part of Job's rage is that he just believes that God is too distant and almighty to not know what he's what is happening with him. Now Job didn't get the good news preached at the end uh, in his life. He didn't get again he didn't get to see Jesus, but for us on this side of the cross and who have believed in the resurrection, we know that God has come near to us. In light of Job's wrestle, we are not left in the dark thinking that God is too big, too almighty, too out there, that God is too distant for and removed from our pain. No, in Christ we know that God has come near and he has suffered with us and suffered for us. And in Christ we know that one day we will see God face to face. The comfort of seeing God with that Job, uh, the comfort of seeing God that Job was seeking is ours with certainty. It is prom the promised picture in the book of Revelation. We know that one day we will see our Savior's face and gaze into his eyes, and he will reach out and wipe away our tears with his hand, and he will wipe away pain forevermore. And that promise is built upon the certainty of his resurrection. Job's story is not done yet. Still more a more to go. But already today, in Christ, on this side of the cross, reading Job's story today, we can receive what Job longed for. And that's an encouragement I need to keep meditating on. And I'm sure that we all need to keep meditating on too. And friend, if you're not a believer today and you're tuning in, I want to ask you and challenge you to see that everything that Job wanted, that we feel frustrated with and empathize with, is found in Jesus. And so I want to ask you whether or not you've placed your trust and faith in Jesus, and whether or not you want to do that, so that you too will be able to experience these promises with us. The final encouragement for us today is the example of Job's struggle. 
You may have heard that phrase before, that it's okay for Christians to lament, and that's true. Lamenting, grieving our pain and loss is a good thing. The Bible is filled with lament. Job, however, seems to push us a bit further than just lamenting. It seems to show us that it's okay for God's people to not only lament, but also to be vexed by our pain, to be in anguish in our hearts over it, to complain about it, to rage against it, but to do so in a God-centered way. Job uses what seems to be very harsh words. His phrases, he phrases himself in ways that we might be very uncomfortable with saying ourselves, and yet God accepts it. God doesn't rebuke him for these things. Job thought God was too distant, too almighty to know how he was feeling. The gospel teaches us that God has come near to us and yet still welcomes these cries and these voices of complaint. See, Job may have used harsh words, but he didn't curse God. He wrestled intensely with what he knew and struggled with. His wisdom failed him in the end. He couldn't make sense of it. In, in the end, all he could do with his suffering and the pain of the moment was to cry out against the injustice of it all. And he did it in a way which was directed towards God and centered on God. There's an increasing popularity in our Christian world today to raise doubt to the level of godliness and holiness as though doubt is a necessary thing or even in greater, the greatest glory in the Christian life. To take your doubts and complaints about God and deconstruct your faith. Inevitably, deconstruction means dismantling and abandoning faith. But Job teaches us that believers are to take doubts and bring them before God. Complain about them? Yes. Voice your confusion? Yes. Do so in a way which is passionate and loud? Yes, even then. But to do it in a way, to do it in a way which lays them metaphorically at his feet and stays there and waits until we get an answer. Or stays there and waits until the answer becomes clearer to us. Job did not complain and run away. He confronted God and he wanted answers. Friends, be encouraged that faith doesn't look like just simply constant, happy, doubt-free living. Faith often looks like a wrestle, a boxing match even. A hard struggle on a hike up a steep hill in which you cannot see the summit. But the gospel message for today encourages us to bring all of our pain and anguish before God. Because God has come near, he engages with us. He encourages us. Faith ultimately remembers that we may not get all the answers and we may not have all the answers to our questions. But we have Jesus who is with us every step of the way. Faith complains and voices complaint. It rages and it trusts. It trusts that God can receive it and it trusts that Jesus will continue to walk with us and be with us forevermore. Let me pray. Father, we pray that this message would be real again to us, that you help us to remember all that your servant Job went through, all of his thoughts that he's expressed, but we pray that you help us to believe and to trust and to follow. Help us to do this for your glory and our joy, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.